leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Neurotrope is developing its experimental therapy, bryostatin, as a potential treatment for Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative conditions. The company believes the drug has multiple mechanisms of action and can stimulate synaptic growth factors to repair damaged synapses, form new ones, and prevent neuronal death. The company, though, found itself in a controversy over the way it characterized results from a phase two study of the drug in 2017. It's now conducting a second phase two study of the drug in the hopes of demonstrating meaningful benefits for patients. We spoke to Daniel Alcon, chief scientific officer of Neurotrope, about bryostatin, the controversy over the way it reported its previous results and the path forward for the drug. Dan, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. We're going to talk about neurodegenerative disease, neurotrope, and the company's experimental therapy, Bryostatin. Let's start with Alzheimer's disease, though. I think most listeners will be familiar with the condition, but perhaps you can talk about the need. What's the therapeutic landscape today, and how much of a medical need does this represent? Well, um, it's a huge unmet medical need. Um, Today, there, there is no drug that has been approved by the FDA to treat the underlying disease or to stop its progression, um, which, which defines the uh, reason for desperation on part of so many families. There are three or four drugs that are approved for symptomatic relief. Um, those are usually temporary and um, don't work for everyone. So they, but they do provide some symptomatic relief for some people, um, and uh, and people take them. Doctors prescribe them, but they don't treat the disease itself. So the disease pursues its relentless course, um, and that involves degeneration. Essentially, it's a a loss of the nerve cells in the brain, and ultimately the connections between those nerve cells in the brain. You may know that there are trillions of connections of, uh, in the brain and maybe about 100 billion neurons. So it's a vastly complex system, a miraculous one. But unfortunately, it degenerates uh, in this disease, which afflicts about 5.5 million people in just the United States alone. 
I've come to think of Alzheimer's disease as the place where phase three programs go to die. Time and again, experimental therapies that have shown promise in earlier stages of clinical testing have failed in late stage testing. What does this suggest about our understanding of the mechanism of the disease and the way drug makers have gone about targeting it? Well, um, it is a, of course, a, a, an extremely difficult challenge. Um, I think that it's not um, uh, surprising that so many uh, trials have failed in phase three because many of them fail in phase two as well. And uh, yet, because of the need, people, drug companies push forward. Uh, um, if you look back uh, over the last 35 years, um, which I've essentially been a participant uh, in fighting this disease, there have been two major fashions, if you will. Um, the major fashion that started was that there's something wrong with the chemical messenger that's released at these uh, millions and millions of connections in the brain. There's not enough chemical messenger that's released. And so the, uh, the effort has been, in the, in the initial 15, 20 years, to jack that up, to increase the chemical messenger being released. And various chemical uh, drug approaches have been used. And uh, as I mentioned, they didn't actually stop the disease, but they gave a little bit of help to some people. And, and that's the basis of a drug called Aricep, for example. And there were other chemical approaches, neurochemical approaches. Um, for example, it was thought and that in advanced Alzheimer's disease that the brain um, becomes overexcitable because some of this chemical transmitter has been spilled out into the extracellular space and it's overexciting the brain. So there's another drug called Namenda, which blocks glutamatergic or NMDA, it's called NMDA, receptor, the excitatory transmitter, and that provides some symptomatic relief, but again, doesn't treat the disease. So that's really been the preoccupation for the first 15 to 20 years. In the last 20 years, uh, another approach has been taken, and that is to use antibodies, uh, antibodies not from the patient, but from an animal model, uh, an animal source, antibodies made to one of the, what I would call, red flags of this disease. The red flags are what you recognize um, in the brain of patients when they, after they pass. One of those is called amyloid, and the other is called tau. One is outside the neuron, that's the amyloid, and one is inside, that's the tau. And the thought has been, why don't we make antibodies to this amyloid and even some antibodies to tell, and maybe we can prevent or maybe stop this disease. And that is largely the amyloid hypothesis. And that has been pursued with virtually billions of dollars of, of research and clinical trials. And from the point of view of animal models, it has some really good sense to it. The problem is that it, it, it so far hasn't worked very well. Um, and 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 there may be a reason for that, and that is um, there there are studies that began about 20 years ago, um, where again 
patients' brains after they passed away were examined for uh, these red flag losses, but they also were examined for something else. They were examined for the loss of the connections. You could you could essentially mark the connections where they occurred, or you could visualize them with electron microscopy, which magnifies those connections 100,000 times so you can actually see them. And when, for example, Bob Terry and his team at the University of California, San Diego, uh, first published one of the major studies, they tried to correlate the loss of the red flag called amyloid um, with um, the cognitive deficits that the patients experienced in life. And the correlation was very poor. They tried to correlate tau, this, this intracellular red flag, and the correlation was very poor. But then when they correlated synapses or the connections and how many were lost with the cognitive deficits, it was a very good correlation. So it seemed that the more synapses you lost, the more cognitive deficits the patients experienced. That study has been repeated by several groups around the country. One particularly good one was done at Hopkins, where they used electron microscopy and counted the synapses in the brain, patient's brains um, in Alzheimer's and controls, and they could see that this cognitive deficit uh, relationship was uh, uh, followed in in their study, and then uh, other studies by a team at University of Rochester did the same thing. So there were maybe five or six major studies that all indicated that it didn't matter how many amyloid plaques you have and how many tau you had, uh, deposits you had. Uh, as far as your cognitive deficits go, what mattered was how many synapses you had. And if you lost synapses, which is what happens in Alzheimer's disease, then you lost cognitive function. Um, probably the very best study uh, that was done on this was done by a man by the name of Clive Holmes in, in London. And he obtained the samples from a study that J&J and uh, I think Pfizer and Elan Pharmaceuticals all collaborated on. It was another antibody study to amyloid. And he examined, again, uh, at autopsy, uh, the presence of the amyloid plaques. And with those antibodies that had been used to treat the patients, um, the amyloid plaques were indeed uh, uh, disappearing. They were gone. But if he looked at the cognitive function of those patients, the loss of the amyloid plaques had no relationship to any cognitive benefit in the patients. So there, there was this, what I would call a, a disjunction between the red flags amyloid and cognitive function. Nevertheless, that is a still a, uh, a strategy that's being pursued. Um, uh, a recent study by Biogen's showed some modest improvement with an antibody after 18 months. Uh, again, um, in those cases, very, very early patients, even uh, pre-Alzheimer's. But that study, that kind of study is still being pursued, although the data is very discouraging in general in the field. 
Now, Neurotrope took a very different approach. It took an approach to say, let's look at the elephant in the room, the loss of this wiring, the loss of this connection, and let's see if we could do something that is, on the face of it, seemingly impossible. Let's see if we can restore those synaptic connections. We can actually induce the neurons to regrow some of those connections. And the reason why we did that is the work we did at the NIH and the work at the Rockefeller Institute with the teams that I led there, multidisciplinary and using electron microscopy. We saw what was, to me, astounding at the time, that you could actually use a, a drug or a drug class in these animal models of Alzheimer's disease or even animal models of stroke or traumatic brain injury where the synapses had been lost, and you could, in fact, regrow the synapses. And that's called synaptogenesis, the generation of new synapses. So we made many, many studies like that. And in fact, um, as an academician primarily, myself, um, we always took the approach of um, exhaustive uh, basic research before even considering uh, clinical trials. So a lot of the work that preceded Neurotrope, which was a, actually a, uh, a spinoff from the Rockefeller Institute, um, which I helped form, but it was based on decades of research with preclinical studies. Well, let's talk about your, your lead experimental therapy, bryostatin. What, what is bryostatin and how was it discovered? Well, first of all, it's not a statin, even though it has the name statin. It's a, a, a certain kind of chemical. It doesn't, it's called a macrocyclic lacto, but its molecular weight is about 900. And it was originally discovered by a, a close colleague of mine, um, a man by the name of Bob Petit at the University of Arizona, who was diving in the ocean looking for chemicals that might help to fight cancer. And he, was, he is an excellent chemist, and he isolated many chemicals, and one of them was bryostat. And he worked with the NCI, which, by the way, I still work with NCI, National Cancer Institute, to see if it could be used to treat cancer. And, and at that time, the, the objective was to uh, inhibit targets called protein kinase C, uh, particularly protein kinase C epsilon. And they could see in their um, in their studies that were in the test tube, that they could inhibit it. And the thought was, um, is it possible that we could treat cancer by inhibiting this enzyme? And there was a reason for that. Uh, the reason was that in those days, there was a very uh, toxic uh, activator of that enzyme called uh, forbol ester. And forbol ester produces cancer. And the thought was, well, if it can produce cancer, maybe if we can inhibit it, uh, we could stop cancer. And the Cancer Institute invested really a lot of money to see if that would work. So they actually did 63 clinical trials with Bryostat on 1,500 patients um, and with, with high doses of Bryostat. And the, the result of high doses of bryostatin is to inhibit it. 
inhibit PKC, its target. When you use low doses of bryostatin, you actually activate it. It's a biphasic uh, effect. If you use low doses, you activate, and if you use high doses, you inhibit. So they used high doses, and they could see they were inhibiting, but it, it didn't help the patients. It didn't work. Um, so some years ago, maybe around 2000, um, when, when I was working on uh, the molecular pathways of memory and potentially Alzheimer's disease, we understood that we could actually see these new synapses being formed when in animal models they were learning something. And when we used bryostatin, that would double or triple the rate at which those synapses were being formed, and we could measure that with electron microscopy. Those were low doses of bryostatin to activate this PKC. And the reason why we did that is because using a variety of tools, we had shown at NIH and, and other work that the endogenous, that means what's there in the brain already, not something outside the brain, not something we bring in, a drug or an antibody, but there inside the brain, this enzyme, protein kinase C, epsilon, is actually being activated when the synapses are being formed. And if you inhibit that activation, you inhibit the formation of the synapses. If you activate it, you can activate the number of synapses are formed, and you can activate learning and memory in normal animals, in a whole variety of normal animals. So the thought was, when we saw this, maybe we could actually help patients who were losing the synapses. And after all, Alzheimer's disease is the paradigmatic disease of memory. And why do I say that? And that's because the first symptom of Alzheimer's disease can be, it doesn't have to be, the loss of recent memory. No other neurodegenerative disease, no other dementia of which Alzheimer's disease is one, actually can pre present with pure memory loss. If you have Parkinson's disease, for example, um, which uh, can produce memory loss, it usually doesn't present that way. It presents with intention tremor. A person's reaching for a drink picks up the drink and his hand starts to shake or he has difficulty or she has difficulty in coordinating his or her movements. Similarly, if you have B12 deficiency, which can also produce memory loss, you have something called paresthesias, which is numbness and tingling in your fingertips. If you have hypothyroidism, which also can cause memory loss, you have other metabolic signs, a slowing of metabolism, a loss of of energy and, and maybe even depression. So Alzheimer's disease can be recognized almost. It doesn't have to be, but sometimes can be recognized by this early isolated memory loss. And we started from NIH and then at the Rockville to look at Alzheimer's disease as a disease of pure memory. And we looked at those biochemical pathways, which we had identified were critical for memory storage in animal models and uh, for the growth of these synapses. And that's why we started to use the lower dose of bryostatin, which is, by the way, uh, without toxicity, as we showed in our trials, which is one of the major findings of our last trial, is that basically we have a dose that is activating this enzyme totally safely without any toxicity, which is a major uh, hurdle that you have to accomplish 
you first want to do no harm. Can you activate whatever your target is without hurting the patient? So we identified that dosage, the dosage based on actually the biochemistry of PKC that was in the sweet spot of uh, essentially the dose curve of bryostatin. The sweet spot being getting activation, no toxicity, and no inhibition, which is what would have been what you wanted if you were treating cancer. There's some controversy around a phase two study of bryostatin the company reported in 2017. The company celebrated this as a positive result in moderate to severe Alzheimer's patients, but the study didn't achieve statistically significant improvements in uh, dementia, in cognition, or, or memory in Alzheimer's patients. What well, happened? I have to correct that. In fact, it really did show highly significant uh, improvement depending on the elements of the statistical package that you could use. In the first 10 days or so when the top-line results were first reported, unfortunately, prematurely, we didn't have all those statistical elements and we didn't have all the data. When on the ensuing months, over the next eight, seven or eight months, we downloaded everything, we provided the complete scientific report to the FDA, there were many additional parameters and statistics that we had actually pre-specified that showed a remarkable improvement. Now here's, here's what I mean by improvement. And I really think you, it's important to define what you mean. Improvement is not, in our view, not just a slowing down of the decline of the patient's cognitive function. Improvement is that the patient actually gets better. And in the 100 years since Alzheimer's first defined this disease in Germany, no drug has ever shown improvement of these patients, particularly advanced patients. And Neurotro purposely went after the most advanced patients, a, a, a group of patients which virtually the industry is avoiding now almost entirely. The reason being that their failures have shown that, they, that they, it doesn't work to use antibodies or neurochemical approaches in advanced Alzheimer's. We started with compassionate use patients, which have been described in publications, who were very advanced, and we measured very significant improvement in each of those trials. So what do I mean by that? We started with uh, our first patient, Sir John Templeton, who started the Templeton Funds. John uh, family came to me, including his son, who was a physician, after spending a number of... Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to, to cut you. I, 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 I want to go back to the results, though. The, what were the results from a statistically significant point that showed this drug worked? Well, let's talk about it. Um, what if was... you look at something called the severe impairment battery, which is the metric of choice for advanced Alzheimer patients, and you looked over a period of 15 weeks, you could see the patient's measures of SIB steadily improving until they reached 13 or 15 weeks um, significantly above their baseline before they even started. That was statistically significant. How many points of improvement did it show? Pardon? How many points of improvement did it show? We measured SIB first at five weeks, nine weeks, 13 weeks and 15 weeks. And the last dose that we looked, the last measure we, do, we looked at 
was 30 days after all drug had been, been finished. So this improvement persisted, and again, never seen before with any drug, 30 days after all treatment had stopped. Now that point, that 30 days after, wasn't even in the first uh, disclosure because we didn't have it yet. And it was, it was probably a big mistake to release data without um, having downloaded all the data. But there were other things that you should... Well, that well hold on. The, 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 the numbers I've here. seen, though, reported a 2.6 improvement at three months. Is that incorrect? Oh, that's because of the, the standard of care therapy called Nemenda was not accounted for. In our statistical analysis plan, we pre-specified, and that's really important in doing these trials to, to arrive at believable statistics. You have to go by the pre-specified statistics, we pre-specified that the standard of care therapy should be checked as a potential blocking or interaction effect with the drug you're using. The standard of care therapy that we, we accepted all patients. It's called, it was called an all-comers trial. So most of the patients that we accepted were either on uh, Aricept, the one I mentioned about uh, enhancing the chemical transmitter, or Namenda, which were glutamate uh, a blocker, and it uh, we we pre-specified that we would examine the data, and we hadn't done that again in the first uh, top-line data where people, you know, saw only the uh, tip of the iceberg, and we only saw the tip of the iceberg. We hadn't had a chance to check that, but it was pre-specified. When we checked it, um, the Aricept didn't do anything; didn't have any impact on, it. and it gave you that little two point six effect. The reports I've seen the reports I the reports I've seen say Aricept actually had a, a five point nine point improvement after six months. I, I don't know what report you're talking about. Uh, is it uh, Dan? Sorry, what report are you talking there about? There was a report in the Street dot com at the time of your study results that made the case that you reported a two point six point improvement at three months of Bryostatin. Aricept, which was a, a six-month figure, had an SIB of 5.9 points after six months. Well, you've got to read the literature. I mean, if you read the literature carefully, and there are usually tens of articles, most of the articles that you're talking about after the first three or four weeks don't show any improvement at all in Aricept. By the way, in our study, what we did, we were very careful because we wanted to make this a rigorous study. We only took patients who were stabilized on whatever baseline therapy they were. For at least three months, they were on a baseline level, whether it was Nemenda or Aricet. They were stabilized. And, and, the, and the abundant literature, literature that is replicated, uh, shows that there's no persistent benefit from Aricet or Nemenda. There's none. I, I'm, not, I'm not really arguing there is. What I'm saying is it's still outperformed Bryostatin in that study. No, no, not at all. I'm, I'm trying to explain that, that we saw an improvement, sustained improvement, after week, beginning week 13 into, into 30 days afterwards, that was at the level of six and a half or more points above the baseline. Now, if you look at placebo effects, placebo in Again, I don't know what patients you're talking about, but we looked at the severe patients. And the, how do we define severe patients? They have to be quantified. You know, everything, every statement you make has to be um, firmly anchored in data. 
and in numbers. So, for example, when we say that we're the only company virtually that's really going after the severe patients, what do we mean? It means we give them something called a mini mental status exam. And if their mini mental status exam is 14 or lower, between 4 and 14 or lower, out of 30, they can come into the trial. They're severe. Most trials go much, much higher than that. And if you look at, for example, uh, a drug by a company like Biogen, looking at recent data, they're looking at people who actually most of them don't even have Alzheimer's. They have mild cognitive impairment. So you really have to define what patients you're talking about. We're talking about severe patients. The severe patients when treated with Aricept, um, don't improve. When they're treated with Nemenda, they actually slow their decline a little bit for three or four months. In the case with Bryostatin, using three or four different statistical measures, um, using the help of the professor of biostatistics at Harvard, Lee J. Wei, who was chairman there for many years, and a professor at Hopkins named uh, Rick Thompson as our advisors making sure we were doing things exactly as would be acceptable. When they used a, two or three different tests, they found highly significant differences. And one of those differences, for example, something called a trend analysis, which actually looks at the relationship between the benefit of the, of the SIB of the patient and the dosage. So you can actually create a mathematical relationship. Does the patient get better? as the dosing increases. I'm going to tell you something. Very few drugs ever show that. But what? we showed it. And the statistics, if you look at the... You, sh- you, you showed that the in a statistically paper, significant a way? Did you look at the well, recent paper that was published? No, I, I haven't. But let me ask you this. You, you're saying you demonstrated that improvement in a statistically significant way? At the .001 level. Did you look at that paper, Dan? I, I have not, but let me ask I'm you this. I'm happy to send it to you. Let me ask you this. Because really, it lays out all of the statistics and all of the data, and, and, and that's really so all ex- I'm emphasizing. Explain something uh, to me, though. I'm, it, it, I'm emphasizing it, it, that you don't just look at the first bit of data that you have okay. in the first couple of weeks. You look at the whole picture. So, it's, you know, forgive me, I'm not an expert on Alzheimer's, on neurology, but if what you're saying is true... Why did the stock fall 60% on the results? I just told you that we made the mistake of releasing some information after only 10% of the data. And, you know, uh, unfortunately, we don't, I don't know if, uh, uh, how it is in, in many clinical fields, but unfortunately, when stock analysts and, and uh, stock, uh, what shall I say, uh, review sheets, look at something, they often don't see the whole picture. And, and it's important, at least, and, and this is why, for example, the J.P. Morgan conference call that we had about a week, a week ago where we had two of the world-leading experts, Dr. Marwan Sabat and Dr. Marty Farlow, uh, being uh, uh, in a discussion with uh, J.P. Morgan's Corey Asimov uh, in, a, in an hour-long call, um, referred to the data that we had. Now, this is a, after they had the benefit of a full review of the, of the paper. They refuted, referred to it as 
highly promising and very exciting. And they analyze the whole thing in their discussion. So those people are experts in the field. They're not just neurology experts. They're clinical trial Alzheimer experts. Let, let, me ask you, been, let me ask you a non-scientific question. Do you feel that Neurotrope ran into a credibility problem over these results and, and some promotional activity that you may have had nothing to do with around those results? And is Neurotrope doing anything to, to establish its credibility with, with the street? When, uh, when are you referring to, uh, Dan? Following the, the first the, couple of weeks? Fo following the, the phase two results. Now, the phase two results, and I presented them um, uh, uh, in San Francisco. I presented them in Florida, a number of places. After, and I played, presented them at the AIC in Chicago. They were presented in CTAD in, in uh, Europe. When we presented them um, in their full uh, context with all the data, there was no credibility problem. We didn't. I never had questions about the statistics of the credibility, because it was a properly integrated, complete description. The credibility came when only a, a small percentage of the data were available. And I think certainly we learned a lesson that you don't rush to the press before you have. I think uh, the full story and. Uh, I, I, I think in the future, when we—I mean—we're doing a, another trial uh, right now as we speak. In fact, um, uh, it's fully enrolled, and what we've done is taken exactly the preferred dosage level, the preferred um, lack of nemenda in those patients, because we understand that nemenda blocks the effect. And by the way, mechanistically, I can explain, and we understand why. Uh, it blocks the effect. So with a preferred configuration, we're doing a trial now in 26 hospitals around the country and um, with an effort to completely confirm what we already got. Are there so, any other differences in that study, and, and when do you expect to have those no, results? No, it's exactly, we, we purposely did it exactly as we already did. The only difference is we took everything that was learned from the trial, we took the exactly the preferred dose, which happens to be called 20 micrograms. We took the absence of Nemenda, which we showed uh, blocked the effect. Um, and the rest is exactly the same. Very severe patients, the same quantitative criteria, uh, many mental status examples I mentioned, the, the, the same uh, examination criteria of severe impairment battery, which is, by the way, uh, not our... Uh, Introduction. I mean, that was done for years as the metric of choice for advanced uh, uh, Alzheimer's disease, and it was actually used for the registration trial for symptomatic relief in 2003 in the New England Journal for Nemenda. So we've taken what are very accepted standards, and we're now repeating that exactly as we did it before. L the difference is we're focusing on the right conditions exactly to get the best results. Let me ask you a question of clinical strategy. Usually we see therapies with the potential for broad applications that include orphan indications, advance in the orphan indications first. With bryostatin, your, your lead indication is Alzheimer's disease, even though you're pursuing this for fragile X syndrome and neiman pick type C. Why pursue Alzheimer's first? You know, um, 
if you have a retrospectoscope, um, and you have the benefit of that in retrospect, we might have taken another disease. What, what it, you know, Alzheimer's is, is a, certainly a big challenge. Um, but each one of those, we have now several diseases that we're actually doing clinical trials, starting to do clinical trials on. It's not just Alzheimer's. Why? Why are we doing that? Which is another way of building credibility, as you were mentioning. Why should people believe that this could actually work? Can you imagine that other universities and other centers have taken our drug protocol, our protocol that we reported, they used it for a model of multiple sclerosis at Hopkins. They used it for a model of Fragile X at the Fraxin, Fragile X Foundation. They've used it in, other, in, in another study on Parkinson's disease. Each one of those models has shown remarkable benefits in preclinical studies. We didn't tell them to do that. They did it because we had credibility. And, it, and the data are amazing. And they're so amazing that they've approached us to collaborate on clinical trials. So, in fact, we're going to begin a clinical trial on multiple sclerosis because experts in multiple sclerosis used our dosing regimen, our model, our drug, and they got great results on multiple sclerosis. They used it on Parkinson's. They got very promising results on Parkinson's. We got orphan drug status of Fragile X, which, of course, is a terrible blight on kids who actually lose their synapses at birth almost, because in preclinical models, it works. And we're collaborating with some premier institutions who work on these types of diseases, such as the Nemours Hospital and the DuPont Nemours Hospital in Delaware. Why should they be interested? Because we have credibility. Because the mechanism is really innovative. And that's what I hope people start to understand. We need new mechanisms. We need something that regenerates the wiring. If you rip out the wiring from a computer... You can't expect the computer to work. Well, the human mind, the human brain, is a miraculously complex computer wiring. And the wiring has been ripped out in a lot of cases. And we found a way, at least preclinically, and we hope to show it clinically, of regenerating the wiring. It doesn't just make the synapses and the wiring come back. It actually prevents the neurons from dying. That's called, as you probably know, apoptosis. It's anti-apoptosis. So our drug has been shown to prevent the death of the neurons and induce the, induce the growth of new synapses. But it's not just we who've shown it. It's a number of different centers, unbeknownst to us, and then they came to us afterwards, after they heard the results of our trial. They heard the results. They looked at the full data, not just the first uh, few days of it, and they said, why don't we try it? And these are very, very sophisticated and highly respected institutions. So they, they were uh, impressed enough with the data, including the statistics, that they said, we better try this. And now papers are pop, popping up from other institutions that are showing amazing results. Do we think that that's the end of it? No. I, I, I wrote an article with one of my colleagues in the Trends in Pharmacologic Science called Toward a Universal uh, Strategy for cognitive disorders, memory disorders, in a very, very fine journal. And what we do is we predicted, we didn't know this would be true, but we predicted that if everything started to work out, that there would be many diseases that this could be working for. And I think that's starting to come true. Of course, 
the proof will be being able to reach the clinic with these patients. But in fact, that's one of the real distinguishing points of the therapeutic approach that Neurotrope is taking. It's taking an approach that not only could treat Alzheimer's, but could also treat a variety of other neurodegenerative disorders. And we think that's evidence that this is the right direction. Now, what about amyloid and tau, which is what the industry is using antibodies for? Well, it turns out in our preclinical models that we get rid of amyloid and tau as well. So the Bryostatin approach is multi-pronged. It's multimodal. It not only works on regenerating the wiring that has been lost and preventing the death of the neurons, it also works on uh, actually preventing the genesis of amyloid or tau. And how do we know that? We know that, and we've written hundreds of articles on this in very good journals, from science and nature to journal biological chemistry, where we actually isolate the enzymes that degrade the A-beta oligomers. There are three endogenous enzymes, not exogenous, not antibodies from outside, not chemicals from outside, but inside the brain, in the human brain. And what we've shown is that the bryostatin through PKC epsilon actually degrades the A-beta oligomers by activating the normal endogenous enzyme and actually degrades the prevention and prevents the formation of the tau tangles. So we have something that potentially could address most of the major facets of the disease. And that's why we think we got, with the compassionate use trial patients, such a major effect. That's why we think we got an improvement with the phase two trial. You know, I think really, you know, it's worthwhile looking at the data. You'll be impressed if you look at the data. Just look at the data. You know, the professor of statistics at Harvard, when we approached him for his expertise, looked at the data and he said, you know, we can do statistics and I will guide the statistics. But when I look at these data, this is a major effect. That was his first reaction. That's why he joined our team. I'm going to have to end it there. Daniel Alcon, I'm going to have to end it there. Daniel Alcon, Chief Scientific Officer of Neurotrope. Daniel, thanks so much for your time today. Sure. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.